Welcome, everybody, to Mets at the Movies, the podcast that talks about movies from celluloid to digital and everything in between. My name is Eric Metz, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite comic book movies of all time, and I think one of the most underrated comic book movies of all time, the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, when this movie came out, I don't believe I had a chance to actually go see it in theaters, simply because I was only four at the time. But uh, over my year, over my younger years, I ended up becoming a huge fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, both the cartoon and the movies itself. And this movie really struck a chord with me and really entertained me and how much I loved it and stayed with me for years. But unfortunately, when it came out, most of the critics didn't uh, like it. It was uh, put down pretty hard. Most people were saying that it was too dark. It was too... Um, it wasn't for kids. It wasn't a very good movie. The script was bad. The cinematography was bad. There was just a lot of negative press. Right now, it's currently at 40% on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think is an absolute travesty. Now, the good news is, on a budget of only $13.5 million, it ended up grossing as of now $202 million. Now, that's a good chunk of change when all you've put into it is 13.5. That's a really good return on investment in my opinion and over the years it's gotten a lot more praise i think if a lot of people went back and reviewed it today you'd have a lot more people kind of interested in some of the aspects it was talking about some of the things that it was doing i think a lot i think it would have a higher score if a lot of people looked back on it and we're going to talk about one of the reasons why i myself would give it a high score but first we're going to talk about the director himself uh his name is steve barron um now, this was his first major film that he directed. He ended up going on to do Coneheads, and uh, that was about it. Now, Coneheads is an okay movie. Uh, it's one of the movies that kind of came out of the Saturday Night Live. But for his first major role, this was it. And uh, he knew he, he kind of knew what he was doing a little bit. Uh, he had some work uh, from some of the best directors of all time. I mean, he worked on uh, Superman with R- Richard Donner. He worked on A Bridge Too Far with Richard Attenborough. And he worked on The Duelist with Ridley Scott, which was Ridley Scott's first directorial debut himself. Prior to that, he spent nine years working on music videos. He was uh, a big music video director. And uh, this was mainly during the 80s. And during the 80s, music videos were probably at its peak. I don't think it's ever, I don't think music videos, in my opinion, have ever hit those kind of heights that some of the music videos of that time were. And some of the music videos that he worked on were Billy Jean, Michael Jackson, Take On Me, Aha, and Money For Nothing by Dire Straits. And just looking at, even not even looking at a Michael Jackson music video, just looking at Aha's Take On, on Me, a lot of people say that is one of the best music videos of the 80s, and it was a pioneer of its time. It did stuff that no music video at that time did or even thought of. There was really it was really Take on Me, Aha, and Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. Those were the two kind of um, music videos that did a lot of unique work um, in the ways of vi- visuals, and uh, clearly it showed with with this movie here. Now the writers were Todd Langan and Bob Herbe- Herbeck. Now. Todd was nominated for his work on uh, for an Emmy for his work on Wonder Years, which I'm a huge fan of myself. I love the Wonders Year, Wonder Years. When I was able to watch it, I binged the entire thing, and it was no doubt why I and there was no doubt why I enjoyed the Turtles movie because it's from a writer who wrote for one of the 
best TV shows, I think, about uh, coming of age and growing up. And Bob Herbeck himself was no slouch as well. He was mainly known for acting in a lot of parts, but he did write episodes uh, for the Jeff- Jeffersons and Different Strokes. And just on those two TV shows alone, those were some of the biggest TV shows at at the time. So any writer working on, on those was a serious powerhouse when it came to writing anything. The fact that you were able to get a job on the, those ones there. Now, some of the actors in this movie were Judith Hoig, uh, who played April O. O'Neill. Some people may know her more from the Halloween Town movie series that appeared on Disney. And uh, lately she's appeared more on Nashville as um, the aunt in the Nashville TV show. Um, also was Ellis Cotis, uh, who played K- Casey Jones. Some people may know him from The Thin Red Line and Shutter Island and Shooter. And James Sato, who voiced and played Shredder. I believe he voiced Shredder. I could be wrong. Uh, but I know that he played Shredder f- physically. And he's no, he's known for Devil's Advocate, Die Hard 3, and a TV show that I absolutely am in love with, Eli Stone. If you haven't seen Eli Stone, watch Eli Stone. It's great work, especially if you're a George Michael fan. You need to watch Eli Stone. Um, but the big name draw for this was Corey Feldman. Now, Corey Feldman was obviously, everybody knows, the IT actor, the it young actor of the year. There was Corey Haim, and then there was Corey Feldman as well. And Corey Feldman was in movies like Stand By Me, Goonies, Gremlins, Lost Boys, all considered cl- classics of today. And he was really instrumental in all those. Now, after the Turtles movies kind of came out, that's really when his career started to take a little bit of a dip. But he was able to at least get Turtles under his resume before he started to go go down. And uh, these actors kind of, a lot of them kept their roles throughout the next few movies. Uh, the director himself and Judith didn't stay on for reasons that we'll talk about a little bit later. But uh, majority of the actors ended up staying on for the for most of the three movies that they did. Now, the story of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the story of four average turtles and one average rat that unfortunately get mutated by some government chemicals, also known as ooze, um, and they ended up uh, growing into life-size or human-size animals who could talk, who can act, who can move, uh, but they didn't have opposable thumbs so they still had that uh, again against them and as they were grow- growing up the way that they the only way that they were able to survive in the sewers of new york was for splinter who learned how how to do martial arts from watching his master while he was uh, just a, r- a regular rat ended up training these four turtles who ended up becoming the teenage mutant ninja Tur- turtles they are leonardo who's known as the leader he's the one with the blue and the swords Donatello, who's the brains, he's the bow staff, he's the staff, and the purple one. Michelangelo, who's the kid, who's the kind of, he's kind of like the younger one, the the younger brother bro, brother of them all. He's he's got the orange, um, the orange color, and he also has nunchucks. And then, then there's Raph, who is one of my favorite comic book characters of all time. He's the red, and he's got the kind of tri um, tri blades. I don't, they're not exactly called tri blades. I forgot what they're called, but they're like the three pronged. Um, hand, handheld we- weapons and uh, they end up having to go up against a group of uh, ninjas known as the foot which is being controlled by uh, a nin- ninja himself known as shredder now shredder has some backstory with splinter and splinter's master i won't go into that because i want at least some of the movie to kind of be a surprise and a interesting 
experience when you watch it. But uh, these four characters have to stop Shredder from basically taking over New York. Now, the Foot, uh, the Foot Clan, um, they are kind of making a lot of trouble for New York. They're the ones who are robbing vans, doing pe- petty crimes. And the reason being is because they're, they're, they're trying to use this to recruit younger members. So the foot is mainly made up of a lot, a lot of younger foot members are made up of younger um, people who just don't have any play, place to live. They're the kind of people who you would think are the going nowheres in life, the, 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 the bums, the wretch of the, of society, Society, those those young those young punk teens who are always skateboarding on the sidewalks and making uh, Clint Eastwood mad, and uh, they take them in and they basically give them a home and they show them that you know what the society has let let them down, but the Foot Clan will not let them down and they'll take them and they'll raise them and then as they get more indoctrinated into the whole con- concept of the Foot, that's when they start entering into training to become a ninja. And once their training is done, they become a full-fledged member of the foot. And that's kind of how things are going. Now, April O'Neil is a reporter who is trying to get to the bottom of, of all this situation. Everything that, that, that's go, going on that it seems the police department just can't control. She's trying to figure out what this actually is. Casey Jones himself is just a kind of straggler who um, is uh, kind of a, yeah, a, a... He's a vigilante, but he's not a huge... Vigilante. Uh, he's not one of like the big names that everybody will know, but he does his part to try and save the world. He's kind of doing something different than what the pol- police do. So the police are trying the normal ways. He's trying to stop stop this through vi- vigilante ways, um, and he's doing a good job. But uh, he doesn't do that good of a job um, until he kind of meets up with the turtles and join- joins them. And that's about the premise of the movie um at one point splinter ends up getting kidnapped by the foot and it's up to the turtles themselves to kind of go in and save but prior to that they they have to go through some trials they 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 go they go through some hardships and those hardships are one of the reasons why i love this movie because to me this movie is very gritty now gritty is different than dark people today are, are are asking for dark gritty movies i believe that that they're two two different things gritty to me means real means dirty it means effective doesn't hold your hand the fight choreography and the fight scenes in this movie are incredible all the actors who play the foot and the actors in the suits of the turtles are actually trained martial artists so that's where you know you're getting realistic fights you're not getting a cg kind of over the top blown out powerhouse fight you're getting real fights there's every fight you feel there's real stakes to it there's real kind of consequences you feel the pain that the individuals are feeling as well because you see their fighting as something that um you've seen before you've you could you've potentially felt before that's why it's great because this movie feels real it feels like it could actually happen in real life now you're not going to walk down the street obviously and see four large turtles walking around but you know what the rest of this stuff kind of has a grounded sense to it, and you feel like this movie can hold up. One of the other reasons why I really like this movie is because of the house scene. Now, to anybody who's seen this before, you'll kind of know. At one point in the film, when Splinter gets kidnapped, the turtles have to escape their lair because the foot f- finds their lair in the sewers, and they have to go live with April O'Neil in her house. And you've got these two fa- two factions. You've got Raph, who really wants to just charge in, save Splinter, get him. We need to we need to stop him. We need to go in. We need to save Splinter now. And then you have Leo, on the other hand, who's the more calm, 
thinking who says, no, we can't. We need to think of a plan. We need to pro- pro- properly go in. We need to figure out what we're going we're gonna to do. And what, ends up, and what ends up happening is Raph gets upset, moody ways, goes up to the roof, and um, starts brooding a lot. But unfortunately, that's when the Foot Clan come. And they kick his butt. Now, they take him down. They tear him down. They throw him through the roof. And at the end of this fight, he ends up becoming unconscious. Like, he really gets he really gets beat up. He really gets beat up bad. And that's one of the reasons why, as I said, it was gritty. You feel like it's real. You can feel the pain that Raph feels while he's getting beat up by all the, all these Foot Clan. Now, unfortunately, with him out, all four of them have to leave. They end up burning down the building, but they have to leave. Again, this is a comic book movie. This is a movie where your heroes lose. There's a part in this movie where they lose. And they don't just lose. Like, it's not a draw. They lose bad. They have to escape the city. They have to leave. They have to run away. They can't stay. They've got to go. One of their people are... One of their brothers are unconscious. They've lost their weapons. They have to leave. They have to get out of there. And that's where they find the house, which I believe is uh, owned by April O'Neil's family. And this is where it takes a, a, a more dramatic turn. This is where the movie really steps up for why I think it is one of the best comic book movies of all time. Because it slows down the pace. It takes away the action, and it slows down down the pace. Now, you have, now again, you have Raph, who's unconscious, and then you have Leo, who the two of them are always kind of fighting back and forth because Leo is in charge... Raph is the one who kind of wants to be in charge, but he's too hot-headed. Now, the reason why this scene is great is because even though they're so opposed to each other, they're still brothers, and Leo stays with Raph the entire time until he wakes up. And then the scene where Raph wakes up, kind of discombobulated, doesn't, isn't sure where he is, Leo's the first one there, Donnie and Mike come in, and the four of them just really hug, really say, you know what, we missed you, we're sorry we let you, we let, we let you down, and it is such an emotional scene that I've seen a lot of dramas can't pull off that kind of love between characters. Then it takes it up a notch where the four of them go out to meditate next to a fire and they communicate through meditation and they communicate with Splinter who instead of, you know, he doesn't say, I need you to come and help me. I need you to come and save me. I need you to come and get me now. He says, no, you can't do this unless all four of you are on the same page. You can't do this unless the four of you are together. The four of you. And then what ends up leading is them all realizing that, you know what, we can't do, do this together. They look at each other. You actually see tears come out of this. These are puppets who you see tear up and hug each other, realizing that they can't do this without each other. And they need each other to go and save Splinter. Spoiler alert, they do. But just that, all that stuff that happens in the house scene is absolutely incredible. I think it is some of the best work in comic book movies, period. I think it is an underrated comic book under underrated comic book movie, and I think it needs to be talked about way more often. Now, unfortunately, some of the backlash that happened after the this film was a lot of people thought it was too dark and it was too violent, which was funny because the original comic book series was dark and violent. The original comic book series, I think, um, by Laird and Eastman, were way, were darker than the actual movie itself. But because there was an animated show prior to this movie coming out, and the animated show was very kiddy, was very jokey, um, a lot of people thought that's what the that's what the Turtles movie needs to be about. Unfortunately, it wasn't, 
and a lot of parents complained. Parents complained so much that the studio heads decided, you know what, when we make the second one, Secret of Ooze, this needs to be more kid kid friendly, this needs to be more jokey, which is the reason why you've got the babies. And then you got uh, Vanilla Ice doing ninja rap, you know, go ninja, go, go ninja, go ninja, go. Awful, awful stuff should never happen, but that's because parents complained. Not only that, Jim Henson himself, who was in charge of the creature production, his Jim Henson creatures were in charge of the puppetry and the costumes of the turtles. Even he said, this is way too violent. So when you have somebody like Jim Henson and you have a ton of parents saying, this is way too too violent, even though it does make a ton of money because of this backlash, they said, no, we need to make the ne- the next one more kid-friendly. And it really hurt. The next few were really bad. They, were, they weren't good. I, I don't want to talk, talk about them. If I have to, I will. But today we're talking about the good Turtles movie. Now, some interesting facts is, in this movie, you saw a young Sam Rockwell. Nowadays, everybody knows him. He's from Iron Man 2. He's from Noon, Moon, sorry, Seven Psychopaths. A lot of people know him now. He's a huge star. But this is early in his career. This is when he was really young. And it's really fun to kind of go and see young actors in these old movies who um, ended up becoming something a lot bigger. But the, the, this is early in their career. So it's really fun. I really I really like going back and watching old film, old movies and seeing young actors of stars today. Also, a gen, uh, gentleman by the name of Scott Wolf uh, is not a huge name. But for p- people who are big fans of the show Party of Five, they'll know him. That's where he got his big break. Skeet Ulrich was also in this as well as an uncredited thug, and uh, now he's 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 a lot more famous now because of the Riverdale TV show. But uh, I knew him first from Scream, and not only that, one of the voices, uh, actually I think he might have done the voice for Shredder, uh, was Kevin Clash, who also was the voice of Elmo. So Elmo and Shredder were the same voice. Kind of fun, interesting, you know. Um, so that's just my take on one of the most underrated comic book movies of all time, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The reason why I wanted to talk about it was because comic book movies are so huge today. People are always talking about the Christopher Reeve Superman, the Tim Burton and Michael Keaton Batman, but they're not talking about, I think, the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I think is one of the best comic book movies of all time. Go watch it. Everybody should watch it, definitely. Now I'm going to take a quick break, and then when I come back, I'm going to segue into talking about remakes, reboots, sequels, since recently we've had a couple of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles reboots and sequels to those. I want to talk a little bit and give my opinion on what these are about. Okay, and uh, I'll be right back after the break. And welcome back. A little short break for you, but a little, little longer break break for me. At this point, I wanted to kind of segue into talking about prequels, sequels, and remakes. And a lot of people are saying the, these days that uh, Hollywood has turned into just a regurgitating system of uh, making old movies, making reboots, making prequels, and there's no original films anymore. And I think that is just pure baloney. There are new movies and there are interesting movies being made all the time there are original scripts being produced constantly and all you have to do is look outside of the hollywood mega movies the summer blockbusters if you look outside of that you're going to see an incredible stream of movies that have no that are extremely original aren't based off of original 
properties, maybe based off off of a book, um, but not based off of uh, original pro- property, an older movie, a reboot, a se- sequel to another one. There are a ton of movies out there. All you have to do is look away from these mega bl- blockbusters and you'll see a lot, a lot of them. Now, when it comes to reboots, I am okay with them. Go nuts. Reboot whatever you want. To me, a reboot will never, ever ruin the magic of the original one. Recently, the Ghostbusters reboot, remake, whatever you want to call it, happened, and I actually enjoyed that movie. I actually liked it. So all this backlash of people hating on it before it even came out because it's ruining their childhood. It's going to ruin the movies of the original not at all. Not at all. When I go back and I watch the original Ghostbusters, it's still just as good. I still have just a good time. I don't even think about the remake whatsoever. I block the re- the remake out when I'm watching the original, and when I watch the you know when I watch the remake, I block the original out because that's kind of what you have to do. Not everything has to be connected. You can have a reboot and have the two movies separately. One of the most famous reboots out out there is the Brian De Palma Scarface. There was a reboot of that way earlier, and nobody really talks about that. And I think that's a a movie that if they want to remake it, reboot it again, go nuts. Kurosawa's Seven Samurai has been remade dozens of times. Basically, any movies where you have to get a group of people together um, to go stop a, uh, a villain is essentially a remake of Seven Samurai. There are a ton. Magnificent Seven was a remake of Seventh S- Samurai. And in, and it's got one of the best sound- soundtracks, period. That theme for Magnificent Seven is incredible. Uh, it's one of my top five of all time. But it's okay to have, have these things. It's okay because what they do is they reintroduce... What they do is they introduce a new film to a new generation. And then once they see this one in the th- and, and if it's done well, that that's the key. It has to be done well. And if it's done well, they can say, oh, great. You know what? Now I want to go back and I want to watch the original. And then they go and they watch the original. Reboots and remakes have the ability to introduce a new generation to older films. All you have to do is separate the film. They don't need to be connected. You can watch each film individually. One movie that I want to be remade, as as I want them to remake it right now, is The Last Starfighter. The 80s Last Starfighter is a cheesy, campy film, but with updated effects and with a new story and with a kind of play on the original, since the original was uh, based off of uh, an arcade machine. Um, I don't want them to do, I wouldn't want them to do what uh, Jumanji is, where they go to like a handheld system. I would want them to stay with an arcade machine and just the new gen, gen generation just doesn't know what an arcade machine is. I think that would, that would be fun. I think it'd be interesting. But that's a movie that I love, that I want them to remake. I want them to redo. People are loving, people love the Dark Knight. People are saying people say that the Batman Dark Knight is one of the best comic book movies of all time. Well, if you want to get technical, that's a remake as well. Like these super like, like these superhero movies are remakes as well. There's a ton of movies out there that are remakes that people don't know. It's okay to remake. It's okay to make s- sequels. I like them because what they do is they expand on the lore. They build on a system and 
already established characters, stories, and they build on it. They grow it. They make the world, they make that universe feel bigger. They give you other stories. They make you want to live. They make you get invested in other stories. They, they make me get invested in these characters a little bit more because I know more of what's going on in their universe. I know kind of what stakes they, ha- they, ha- they, they have to do. If I see a prequel that explains a, l- a little bit more, then hey, you know what? I get another backstory. I get some more detail on these characters as well. People say that not more isn't always better, but sometimes more is. And when you're giving more, when you're giving a, a greater depth, when you're getting a greater scope of field, when you're getting, getting a greater understanding, I think that's that's better. The more you know about a specific topic, the more you'll understand about the more you'll un- understand about about it. So I'm fine with all these remakes, reboots, and all this stuff. These companies own these properties. They can do whatever they want with them. They don't owe us anything at all. If people pe- people are being people are putting out original films. And there's not a lot of films that are going out there. A big, big one that everybody talks about now is Hell or High Water. I went to see that last year. It's an original film, and wow, it's a great film. But not a lot of people went to see it until it got nominated for an Oscar. But prior to that, not a lot of people saw it. And it was a great, great movie. And all you have to do is look outside of these mega blockbusters, and you'll see, and, and you'll see original scripts. But to me, if you want to do... Cinematic universes, if you want to do prequels, sequels, reboots, go nuts. To me, it won't ruin the original story. And that is my take, and that's the end of the first episode of Mets at the Movies. I want to thank everybody for listening today. I'm going to try and put these out in a weekly fashion, and we're going to talk, talk more about other films, other topics. And if you have any topics or movies you'd like me to talk about let me know and we'll and we'll discuss them even more again this is just a simple canadian talking about movies that he loves and uh some you may have heard of and some you may not have so ladies and gentlemen i will see you at the next screening